It's very exciting. It's very dynamic and it can be exhausting. So you have to pace yourself. I'm not good at that. I'm all out all the time. And interestingly, I'll tell you this, when I actually left that job, I had gone to see a naturopath and he said to me, your adrenals are shot. He said, it's going to take a lot to turn the ship around because you are just, your mind is still functioning, you know, and you're just keeping on. He said, but your body needs a rest. So that's not something I, to me, if, if, if I can make it happen, I'm going to make it happen. A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Today, my guest is Jan Jones, author of The CEO's Secret Weapon, How Great Leaders and Their Assistants Maximize Productivity and Effectiveness. I was interested to talk to Jan because I know that for everyone who's building an organization or who finds themselves in a leadership role, someone who's an entrepreneur, that there comes a point in that journey where the demands can seem overwhelming. There comes a point where it makes sense to bring someone in specifically to support you in your endeavor to grow something, to achieve something, to contribute something. And Jan is someone who knows very well what it takes to perform at an extraordinary level as an executive assistant. Jan has more than 20 years experience being an executive assistant. She's traveled extensively and worked in many parts of the world. Jan has worked as an executive assistant for Tony Robbins. She's also worked with Michael Gerber, author of The E-Myth. For this book, Jan also interviewed extensively executives and their executive assistants at some of the world's largest organizations. She talked with Richard Branson's assistant, Cindy Crawford, Simon Sinek's, Donald Trump, John Chambers, so many, and includes in this book what it takes to be an extraordinary executive assistant. In this book, she includes not only what it takes to be an extraordinary executive assistant, but what it takes to find one, to hire one, to work with one in a way that's satisfying and effective for both people in that equation, the executive and the executive assistant. In this interview, we explore how to know, how to really know when it's time to hire an executive assistant. We talk about finding that person, how to do that. We talk about what interview questions to ask and how to determine whether or not they're going to be a good fit and whether it will work out, which of course we never know for sure, but through some quality research and some intelligent questioning, I think we can get a little closer to that. We also talk about what are the most important skills for an executive assistant, how to identify those, how to get to know them, how to work with them, how to compensate them. How do you know how much to pay someone for this role? And then I ask her what it was like to work for Tony Robbins 
And one of the things that I love in this interview is that Jan gives the essential question, the fundamental question for any executive assistant to ask themselves before taking a job working with and for an executive. In this interview, we also explored the tangible and intangible characteristics of an exceptional executive assistant. You can learn more about Jan and her work at janjonesworldwide.com and you can learn more about her book at theceosecretweapon.com. Jan, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you very much, Brian. Happy to be here. I'm so glad you are. Jan, will you tell me, please, what is life about? What is life about? Start with the easy questions, right? (laughs) (laughs) Just work from there. Life is about whatever we're experiencing when we're experiencing it. I don't know any other way to say that, you know, life is, is what we experience and it's, and it's, in some ways we have overlapping experiences and in other ways we have our individualized and our separate experiences, right? And I was in a, a satsang in a meeting one time and somebody asked the teacher, you know, what is the purpose of life? What is life about? And he said, life is about enjoying the gift of life. And To that, I have to add what another teacher said, irrespective of circumstances. Life is about enjoying the gift of life, irrespective of the circumstances, whether you're happy, whether you're sad, whether it's going away, whether it's not. Life is about, life is a gift. You know, it truly is. And another one of my teachers said, if you truly understood the gift you've been given, you'd never ask for anything else. Wow, that's beautiful. And I I really love that answer. And it resonates with me. And what I find is it's maybe one of those things that's simple, not easy, right? Like it's easy to enjoy life when it's going your way, when you're getting what you want and the weather is good and people are, you know, pleasant and things like that. But what have you found? I'm kind of going deep here, but I just want to follow this thread. How do you personally manage to do that even when circumstances or particular situations aren't easy? It's constantly bringing my awareness back. And I've been doing it a a long time. So I'm not saying it's easier to do, but the awareness comes quicker now than it used to. So I don't get quite so, you know, when I was younger, I would get fully into an emotion and it would take a long time to release it. Now I can quite quite quickly bring myself back to to center where it's not, I'm not going off in in a direction that I'll find I'm I'm never going to come back from, you know? Okay. What a valuable skill and maybe one that's necessary if one is going to perform at the highest levels as an executive assistant, (laughs) right? Which, you know, to be honest, before we met, I'd never thought, oh, there's someone in the world who is, you know, the world's leading expert on what it means to be an effective executive assistant. But of course there is, right? There's an expert about everything. And it makes sense that, you know, there are executives who run the world's corporations and government organizations and NGOs and all of this. Of course, there are people who work, you know, closely with them to support them and help them be successful. But let me ask you this question, which is when you introduce yourself, you know, maybe or when you're introduced from a stage, how do you typically like to answer the question? You know, who are you and what do you do? Well, who I am and what I do now is is I'm not an assistant any longer. Obviously, I run, I have a business, but I do very much identify as being an executive assistant because I was one for 20 years, right? So, and when I talk to assistants, I always say we, or when I'm writing about assistants, I say we, 
because I guess old habits die hard. I, I very much relate to being an executive assistant. And it had such an impact on me that in my business right now, in my life right now, a lot of what I do is guided by what I learned as an assistant, you know, working side by side with entrepreneurs and, and uh, CEOs. And so that's uh, kind of second nature for me. When people introduce me now, they just they they introduce me now as the author of the CEO's secret weapon. That they introduce me as the author of the book, and then of course they they talk about me having international business experience, having worked across four continents in my career, things like that. And they always love to mention that I work for Tony Robbins because he's such a, a major personality in the world today. So that's something else. I don't define myself that way, but people like to introduce me that way in order to give some perspective to who's there in front of them speaking. Yeah. And I want to ask you, I want to ask you about Tony Robbins, but I'm going to hold off on that because I know you've worked with so many amazing personalities. I want to explore for a moment this book, The CEO's Secret Weapon. So will you tell me, why did you write this book? Who did you write it for? What did you want it to do for them? So I wrote the book for executives specifically. And the reason I did that is because the realization finally came to me when I actually, when I started my business, so I, I own a speakers bureau, it's a bespoke speakers bureau, and we send business experts and celebrities to speak at events all over the world. And because of that, I have to work closely with these famous business people's assistants, right? And I discovered that many of them didn't have assistants who were worthy of this caliber of executive. And I was always surprised. How come this person who's standing up on a stage and telling the whole world how to run their business has got some crummy assistant who, do who doesn't know what they're doing, you know? And I thought, I'm going to, I found myself starting to explain to executives when they were needing an assistant or something like that what it took to support somebody like them and why it was so important for them to really pay attention to who was their representative and their face to the world. And that's when I started to, to because always in the back of my head, people were saying to me all the time, write a book, write a book. Yeah, but what to say, you know, how to. And then finally, it started to, to come together that the executive is the person I needed to target because the assistant knows a lot of this. The assistant knows who they are. They know what they do. But the executive has no idea. They don't know how to go about hiring an assistant, what to look for, what characteristics. Once they bring them on board, what to do with them, all of those things. So I realized that it was incumbent on me, if I was going to do this, to speak directly to the executive. And I said to my publisher repeatedly, I said to her, I'm telling you right now, I'm writing the book for the executive, but it's going to be the assistant who's going to push this book, who's going to drive the book, and who's going to give the credibility of the book to the executive. Because the executive may come back from an EO meeting, for example, and say, hey, have you heard this book, The CEO Secret Weapon? And if she goes, oh my God, yes, absolutely, I've read it, you, sh you should read it, that's a huge endorsement, right? Because executives listen to their assistants. Hopefully. And if the assistant said, oh, God, that's just junk, I wouldn't waste my time, the book would go nowhere. So I knew that that it had to have the credibility with the assistants and as much as it had to have with the executive. And fortunately, it does, because assistants write to me from all over the world telling me this book is their Bible. Nothing, nothing more gratifying to me than to hear that. Yeah, no, I, I can imagine. And, you know, I, I got a lot of value out of the book. I have there's a statement that you make pretty early in the book here where you say high profile executives frequently saddle themselves with incompetent and opportunistic assistants who buckle under pressure, betray confidences and use their positions as stepping stones to greener pastures. It's like, mm, that might be most <laughs> assistants, but 
you know, before we before we go to that, I I want to I just want to back up a half step because I too, you know, as I'm working to reach and serve people who are working, they're giving their all to building something, expressing something, contributing something to others. You know, pretty much everybody who's in that situation, who's chosen that path to be a leader, to be an entrepreneur, to be an executive, I think pretty much everybody feels stressed out, overwhelmed, under-resourced, you know, this kind of thing. And for many people find, just like you said, you know, not knowing how to find an assistant, what questions to ask, maybe how to pay, it it just becomes another task on their to-do list. But how does one know that, okay, it's time? Like it's time to introduce someone because that's a big, first of all, you're letting them into your personal life, right? Very, very closely. Even if you're keeping up some kind of boundary by nature of they're reading your email, they're looking at your calendar, that kind of thing. So how does one know? Yeah, it's, it's time for me to bring someone into my life to fill this role. Well, there's a point at which you're having diminishing returns, right? And there's a point at which you're doing tasks that are just absolutely not productive, not valuable to your time. When you're doing those things, it has to be clear that, look, there's, there's somebody better served doing this task. You know, I, as I say in the book, you know, are you, are you serving your organization by sitting there making your travel arrangements, trying to save $10, you know, on an airfare? That's not a good use of your time. That's somebody else is much more proficient at that. Right. So if you're doing these kinds of things and I understand, you know, with entrepreneurs, for example, small businesses and people like that, startups, they don't always have the kind of money. You know, they do a lot of things because they can't just can't afford to bring somebody on. And that now today, of course, is rectified because you can use virtual assistants, for example, to help you. I don't I don't recommend that for a long term solution because I well, because if your assistant is going to grow alongside you. They need to be side by side with you. They need to be. It's like having a long distance relationship. How far is that going to go? You know, it's like you hear about Hollywood couples and you say, what happened to your marriage? And they say, well, I was off making a film. He was off making a film. We never saw each other. You know, it doesn't work long term. You have to be there to imbibe each other and to feel each other and and to take your cues from each other and observe body language and all of these things. And to be right there in, in the middle of the action, you know, you, this is the thing. If, you, if you're not there, you can't really, you can't really support each other. And I was just having this conversation because of now with the virus, people are using, working remotely, right? And this one assistant said to me, well, you know, I don't need to go into the office anymore to be seen. And I said, well, it's not a question so much of being seen as it is of being right there in the, in the middle of the action and having the experience at the same time your executive or somebody else is having it. Otherwise... They have to make a note to tell you what happened. And telling me what happened is very different than me being right there experiencing it. So I want to be there in the middle of the action to see, to hear, to know what to touch, to feel, to know what's going on, because then I have firsthand experience. I don't want secondhand experience in anything. So if you're going to be what I call an exceptional executive assistant, you're, you're going to have to be side by side with your executive. You're going to have to be there to support them. You know. All of my career, my executives were constantly yelling out, Jan this, Jan that. I mean, I couldn't barely be out of earshot because they were constantly calling for me because they needed this or they needed that. And I, I had to be there to rattle off those answers to them when they were firing them at me. So that's the thing, you know, you, you need to be there. Yeah, I, I think this, that's how I, when I watched how my dad worked, he worked that way. And I think this might be one of those things where, you know, there's a practical answer, like you've just said, when someone, you know, someone knows it might be time, 
to bring an executive assistant on board when they find themselves doing tasks that someone else could do and leave them with more capacity to do things that only they could do, whether it's yes. creative work or client relations or presentation, you know, that kind of thing. And that makes sense. But, and, and Michael Gerber, you know, someone that I understand you worked with for about 10 years. Yes, I represented him exclusively for 10 years, yes. Yeah, and this is something that's right in the heart of what he talks about, where Absolutely. we, you know, many people in the e-myth about we become successful because we have a core genius, but then to go to the next level, it often requires another skill set and delegating or releasing certain things. And it sounds easy, but in the day-to-day -day of managing cash and, you know, keeping clients happy and things like that, that can be a little hard to do. So let me ask this, then when it comes time, so say I've reached the point and I've said, that's it, you know, I'm going to find someone. Now, how do I go about it? It's all about you. Executives forget this all the time. HR forgets it all the time. First of all, it starts with you. What do I need? What do I need from this person? What do I need from this relationship? What am I doing that I just want to get off my desk? What do I need to relinquish here? How do I like to work? Am I a morning person, an evening person? Do I like meetings at a particular time? Do I like lunch meetings? All Everything that you can possibly think of about you, put that down and be completely honest about it because this is ultimately, this is about you and what you need. And I know a lot of younger executives will say to me, well, you know, who am I to ask my assistant to do this? And I feel bad to ask that. And in this day and age, can I even say my assistant? And this is all nonsense. You know, this is about you bringing in somebody who relies on you to give them a job. The assistant needs this job. They need a paycheck. They need to put food on the table for their kids. They need to send their kids to school. You're, you're doing something valuable. You're giving them what they need. You're providing them with a livelihood. And you have a right to ask for what it is that you need. If the assistant doesn't want to do it, that's a different story. They say, okay, this doesn't suit me. They don't, they don't join your company, right? But you have to be clear on, this is your business. This is your, it's your life, right? I mean, a lot of business owners, this is, their business is their life. That's what they do. That's, it's who they are. That's how they identify themselves. So you have a perfect right to ask for what it is you need. And once you get that established, then you go about looking for the person who's going to best meet those needs. So if you're somebody who is a big picture person, you're going to be driven mad by somebody who is, is wanting to just be engaged in minutia and ask you questions all the time. You're going to say, go figure it out for yourself. Don't bother me. Right. So you have to find somebody who is going to be able to work with you only looking at the big picture, but somebody who is also able to manage the details. Or if you are, if you are a micromanager, you're not going to be able to work with an assistant who is accustomed to working autonomously, for example. They're going to be driven nuts. So you're going to have to look for somebody who is really a very, very good fit for you. And it may, it may take a lot of time. You know, in, in the book, I talk about John Chambers, the former CEO of Cisco. He saw 17 assistants before he hired Debbie Gross, and she was with him for 20, almost 30 years. So, you know, you're going to have to invest time in this because you're really looking for somebody who, as I say in my book, is a seamless extension of you. That's who you're looking for. You're, they're your face and voice of the world. They're, they're your deputy. They know details about you that maybe sometimes even your closest family members don't know about you. So you're going to have to be very, very careful how you choose this person. Yeah, it's, it's, a, big, it's a big decision for sure. 
And as I hear you describe, you know, being very clear what you want, what your work, what your own working style and preferences, and who's going to complement that. You know, what what comes up for me is is number one that I think requires a high degree of self awareness oh, and yeah. honesty. Oh, yeah. Right. And number two, that the person, so say you're interviewing someone and you're telling them, you know, this is my working style. These are my preferences. These are the requirements. Anybody interviewing is likely, almost anybody interviewing is likely to say, oh yeah, I can do that. No, I'm, I'm a good fit and here's why. But how do you know? Cause anyone can look good in a resume. Anybody can, almost anybody can look good in an interview, you know, even references check out. So how do you really know just saying you've got, okay, so you've made the decision to hire an assistant. You've done the analysis of what your needs and desires are. Then you're at the point where you've, you're interviewing people. How do you actually determine who in fact will be a good fit? So here's the thing. I learned this from Elon Musk and I put it in my book because I, I just found it so insightful. He said, when you're interviewing somebody, if they've done something, they will be able to get down to the brass tacks. If they haven't done it, they'll fudge. And it's very easy to tell whether somebody is, and I say this all the time to executives, if you ask an assistant, have you done something? If, if they've done it, they will rattle on for 15, 20 minutes about how they did it, what they did, why they did. I mean, they'll give you every last detail. If they didn't do it, they'll say, oh yeah, well, you know, and, and, they'll, and they'll fudge. So this is a very, very good indication about whether somebody's actually done something or not. I was talking with a, an executive a while ago, and he was saying to me, he made the wrong decision for his assistant. She, he had asked for an assistant who had previously worked with the CEO, and she said she had worked with the CEO. But the CEO she had worked for was a small business owner. He was a startup. She was the only employee, and she hadn't, didn't have the broad corporate experience he was looking for. But she said, I told the truth. He said he wanted someone to work for CEO. I work for CEO. But he just looked at that. He didn't go beyond that to say, well, what are some of the things you did for the CEO? What are some of the things he required of you? Tell me, you know, he, he didn't go for the, broad, the broader strokes. He just listened to her saying, yeah, I work for CEO. And that was all there was to it. And he said to me that he ended up having to train her. <laughs> in what she and how she needed to do her job. You don't have time for that. I said to him, why did you put up with it? Why didn't you? He said, Jan, I, it took me so long to figure out what I needed, how to go about it. My work is piling up. I'm just like at this stage, fine. You know, I'll, I'll just do what it takes. This is, this is not, a, not a good thing to do. If, if, if you have to make the cut, you have to make the cut. And you, you, but you have to have the conversation first, right? You have to have the conversation. You have to let them know whether or not they're cutting it or not. Um, and then explain to them, look, this is what I really need. And give them a certain amount of time to show you whether or not they can do it. And if they can't, then they have to go. That's just, just the way it is. Yeah. Well, and I think what you're pointing to, you know, it makes a lot of sense of, of saying there is, a, there is a sort of dynamic or a chemistry that is going to be unique to the executive based on their preferences and working styles and that kind of thing. What you're saying makes a lot of sense, that there is a unique person or a unique dynamic that an executive would look for with an executive assistant. But even setting that aside, I would imagine that there's a core set of skills or competencies or ways of being that are probably common to every high-performing executive assistant. And I'm just assuming that, but do you see it that way? And if so, what are those things? 
Because you talk about the intangibles, and I'm, I'm curious yes. about that. Yes. Yeah, so you've got the fundamentals that are in place, which is the bedrock of every assistance toolkit, right? Which is proficiency in their computer programs and typing, and in my case, shorthand. And I'm glad to see many people are bringing back shorthand. I don't understand how you could an assistant could ever have functioned without it because things are happening too fast and executives are very impatient and they're barking things at you and you've got to you know, write them down really, really fast. And if you can't write shorthand, you're going to miss a lot of it. In my very last job, I was working with a, a CEO and I had an assistant who didn't write shorthand and he would call us in and we would be there together because she did some things, I did some things. And so he would be dictating and I would be taking notes like crazy and she would be typing and she would be missing a lot of what he was saying. Even though she was a really fast typist, she was probably typing, I don't know, 90 words a minute or something, but she was missing a lot of what he was saying. And so I'd have to go back and read my notes and say to her, okay, this is what he said, or that is what he said, or something like that. So shorthand, being a fast typer is not, is not my experience is that it's not a, a replacement for writing shorthand. So you have those fundamental skills. And then you have to be proficient at things like, you know, being able to make travel arrangements and, and being competent with managing lots of different details, things like that. Very good communication skills, you know, in the way you answer the phone and, and being proficient in your job, knowing, knowing the company, knowing, understanding the business. So if a call comes in, you don't say, well, somebody sent the call to the CEO, so let him take it. <laughs> you don't give the call to the CEO, you figure it out. Who, either you handle it or you send it to the right department. So you have to have a fundamental understanding about your organization and, and how it works. But then you have to bring what I call the intangibles, these skills that they call soft skills, these je ne sais quoi indescribable things, right? Like the ability to, the, when I, you know, it's so interesting. When I was interviewing executives and assistants from my book, categorically, everybody said the most important skill they had to have was being able to anticipate being good at anticipating the boss's needs. Uh, the boss would, the, the executive would say it, the, the assistant would say it. And as they were saying it, I would keep waiting for them to say that next thing, that next thing, which I consider to be equal first with anticipating. And that's resourcefulness. Got to be resourceful. Got to know where to go for information. You don't always have the information, but you have to know how to get the job done. You have to be able to say, okay, I don't have what I need. So I, I'm going to have to use what I have, Right. And, and you figure out ways to get things done. That's being resourceful. That, that's absolutely crucial because I know a lot of assistants, they're able to say, well, oh, I see this is about to happen, but they don't know how to fix it. And then they, they give it to the executive and all of a sudden it becomes the executive's job to, to find the solution. So you've got to be resourceful. You've got to be able to find a way to anticipate and to also do something about what you see, right? And the more I started talking about this, to me, something precedes all of that. And preceding all of that is the ability to see the big picture. Because if you can't see the big picture, if you don't get the big picture, you can't anticipate, you don't know what to look for. And if you don't know what to look for, then you don't know how to resolve it. You don't know how to be prepared. So seeing the big picture is, is, uh, is a very, very important skill. And, and that's where communication with your executive comes in because they have to be accountable for communicating with you, right? These are my goals. These are my objectives. This is what we want to achieve in the, in the next quarter, in the next year, in the next five years, et cetera. So there has to be constant communication between the executive and the assistant, because once the assistant is completely apprised of what it is that you want to achieve, now they're able to help you achieve your goals. But if you don't talk to them, if you don't communicate with them, if you don't trust them, if you don't download to them, if you are not transparent with them, they're not going to be able to do their job. 
because there's only so much you can glean from reading documents and from listening to conversations and everything else. And this is what I mean about this one-on-one -on -one with the executive where you sit together and you talk and you exchange and you say, well, I've seen this actually. I know you're thinking about doing that, but from what I'm hearing, I really think we ought to make an adjustment. And this is how you have this back and forth and you develop a rapport and you become essentially now you're working together in a partnership with each other. You talk about, so, okay, so I'm hearing in what you're saying, anticipation. It was the most common response from, and you interviewed some pretty high profile oh, people's yeah. assistants, Simon yeah. Sinek and Donald Trump. And as you mentioned already, John Chambers and, and these people. And, and so you went deep in uh, not only your career in, in this work as an executive assistant, but and then in interviewing both executives and their assistants. But so what I'm hearing is these common traits that are valuable, anticipation, resourcefulness, the ability to see the big picture. So you've got these things and you tell this story, hearing you share that calls to mind for me, a story you tell in the book that I cringed a little, I, I cringed a little bit when you told it about the, don't make me do your job. <laughs> will you share, will you, would you be willing to share that story oh, here? Oh yes. Yes. It's a lesson I've never forgotten. And you know, I tell you something, Brian, I'm so grateful because during the time that I was coming up as a young secretary and then as an assistant, and you know, we, they, your title evolves as you become more senior. But my executives never hesitated to set me straight. And that's how I learned. And if they hadn't taken the time to do that, I would never be who I am and where I am today because th these are vital lessons. I was working side by side, these business people who were teaching me exactly what they knew and how they would do it, right? So incredible gratitude. Now people say all the time, executives don't want to tell their assistants anything. They're afraid of looking like they're, you know, they, they, they're nervous to, to do the right thing. You know, they don't want to be misinterpreted and things like that. So it, it's really a shame because many assistants say they want a mentor. They want somebody who's, you, you don't have to, you know, ball them out, but you need to really give them some direction, you know, and I'm so grateful that I had that. So what happened one time was that we had a really important document that needed to be signed. And we were at the head office in Sydney. This is when I li lived and worked in Australia. So our head office was in Sydney and our director was based in Melbourne. And he was about to go back to Melbourne. And my CEO said to me, I need this document signed, get John to sign it. So I take it to John. He's not in his office. His assistant is sitting there. And I say to her, get him to sign this document. It's really important. He's got to sign it before he goes. She says, put it on his chair. He won't miss it. So I put it on his chair. Five minutes later, I come back and I say, do you have the document? She goes, no, John's gone. I, I, my head was going to explode. But anyway, I go to the chair and it's just sitting there. It's not signed. So I have to now take the document to my executive. I have to say to him, you know, I didn't get it signed. And I said to him, look, I gave it to Allison. She said, put it on his chair. He'll sign it. He came in, took his jacket from behind the door and left. He didn't even go to his chair. Right. And she didn't didn't think to say to him, hey, John, there's a document to sign. So I give the, I tell the story to my boss and I can see the frustration building on his face. And there I am just so aghast that I've let him down because I just idolized this guy. He was just the most incredible executive, you know. And to think that I had somehow betrayed his trust in me. So I'm sitting there. He picks up the phone. He calls down to our Melbourne office and he says to them, Tell John when he arrives, this document is coming by the overnight bag tonight, get him to sign it, put it in the bag and send it back to Sydney overnight. And as he's saying all this to her and in between while she's taking notes, he looks at me and he says, I don't want to have to do your job for you. 
what could I say? What could I do? There was, you know, I mean, in that moment, I just had to muster all my humility and, and just take the lesson. And I, I'm so grateful. I've never forgotten it because never again in my life have I ever permitted my executive to say, I don't want to have to do your job for you. Because that's exactly what I made him do. He did my job for me. CEO of, of a gigantic company doing my job for me. So yes, yes, I, I'm glad you, I'm glad I conveyed to you <laughs> exactly how I felt. So, okay. So as we're moving down this progression, how to identify, you know, how to know when it's time to hire an executive assistant, how to be clear, which one's going to be a good fit with you, what to look for. And then we get into an interview process. And this is one thing I really appreciate in your book, by the way. And you just mentioned the one, the question from Elon Musk, which I actually wrote down as well as I read the book. I thought that was a great question about asking someone, especially in this era where things are collaborative more than ever, you know, and people say, oh, I was part of the team that grew revenues to 20 million, or I was part of the team that launched that product. And, and, and I love that insight about asking how they did it. And, you know, people who were really involved at the, in the action of it will be able to talk about it differently. You mentioned a question that Simon Sinek asks that I similarly thought was a great question about surprises. Will you share what, what is the question that Simon Sinek shared with you to ask in an interview and what other questions have you discovered are really good at kind of weeding out, you know, who might actually be a good fit from who you'd be glad you didn't hire? Yeah. You know, he, he doesn't like any surprise. He doesn't like surprises. So he always asks, asks them the question, what, what surprise would I not like to have? Tell me about that surprise. Right. That's that's a tricky question because in an interview, a lot of the time you have to assume you don't know the person well enough to to be able to answer a question like that. And there's something else I point out in the book is I as I say to executives, don't ask them questions that they're going to need inside knowledge to answer. Yeah, because then it's just a gotcha question because there are a lot of things about your company that they can't possibly know. So don't judge them if they can't answer that as proficiently as possible. But in general questions, yes, you know, HR should have already done the whole portion about whether or not they're proficient in their skills and things like that. So when you're talking to the person, it's really about getting to know them, getting to know them and sharing who you are. Because in, in that process, and, and the thing about executives, I tell them all the time is, look, you've, you've built a business, you've probably built many businesses, you have very good gut instincts, trust your gut. And this executive who said to me, I don't want to have to do your job for me. When he was interviewing me, he said to me, you know, ultimately, it's a gut feeling that you have, whether this person is going to be a good fit or not. You know, I, I, I can, we can sit here forever and, and talk about all kinds of things and ask all kinds of questions. But in the end, it's a gut instinct about whether or not you're going to be a good fit for me and whether we're going to work well together. So I think a lot of that has to do with your intuition and whether or not you feel comfortable with this person. And for the assistant, it's very, very important to say to yourself, is this somebody that I'm willing to go all out for in the long term? Because it takes immense amounts of energy to be an assistant. Immense. You can't even begin to imagine. Not just the long hours, but the sheer volume of things that are coming to you, the sheer volume of everybody at the same time wanting things from you. You know, some days you, you just become in a state of overwhelm because it's just immense what they're asking all the time. You have to know the answers. You have to show the results. There's, there's lots of things that are on your shoulders. So... You have to, uh, for me personally, the question is, is this somebody I want to support long-term? Is this somebody I care enough about to give my life force to? 
because that's what I'm doing day in and day out. I'm giving them my life force. And for me, the time to leave is when I no longer want to do that. I can't give you any more. I've given all I can give and I'm, I'm not replenishing. I'm not feeling like I'm getting anything back from it. Then it's time for me to move on. And sometimes you can have the discussion ahead of time with your executive and let them know. Sometimes they don't want to know. And when they don't want to know, then you know you're not being treated and respected for as a human being. So it's, it's time to move on. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a powerful question. And I love a question a friend of mine suggested, and, and this was for hiring anyone, but I think it's a great question for maybe hiring an executive assistant. He just said, not that you would go on a road trip with him, but but he said, it's just the kind of person I would want to go on a road trip with. <laughs> like I'd want to be stuck in a car for 20 hours, you know? I was like, that's an interesting spin on it. But you also have this other thing that I'd never thought or I'd never heard it worded this way that I actually thought was pretty interesting where you you suggest asking general knowledge questions such as who's the prime minister of England or what's the tallest mountain in Japan or something. What's the thinking behind that? Well, an assistant has to be well-rounded. They have to be tuned into what's happening in business and in world, whether it's social, economic, political, they have to know what's happening in the world. And now more than ever, assistants have to be tuned in because of, because the whole globalization thing, you have to know what's going on. And you can't afford to be dealing with somebody in the Czech Republic or in India or somewhere else, and you have no clue about their country, about their customs if you don't even know the capital city of, of their country. So in this particular one that you mentioned, the example that I gave, I was working at this company where we had offices in the UK and uh, we were headquartered in Japan. And so if somebody was coming to work, I would say, what are some general knowledge questions? You know, who's the Queen of England? What's her name? What's her husband's name? You know, do you know her children's name? Of course, in America, it's more difficult than Australia and England or somewhere. They, they would know that anyway. But you, but you have to know that London's the capital of England, right? You know, uh, uh, there are people who think New York's the capital of America. You know? So, you know, this is the kind of stuff that you, you, you have to make certain that if, if they're not tuned and if they're not informed, they're not going to be a good ambassador for their executive. So these are the kinds of things you have to know. And also when your executive is having conversations, you have to be able to make sense of the conversations that they're having. You know, if they, you've got to read something in the newspaper in the morning, you've got to be able to say, you know, okay, they're looking at the Wall Street Journal or the uh, New York Times or whatever, and there's an article in both those papers this morning talking about something in particular. I need to know what that is because it impacts how I do my job. And I want to be informed when my executive is talking. And I may have seen something that uh, adds some dimension and perspective to what they've read, because I may see some of the news developing later on than what they've read that morning. So I have to be able to contribute. So I, I have to be informed about the world and, and you know business and economics and everything in general. Yeah, that, that made a lot of sense to me. And in this process of interviewing someone, you know, using these questions and these kinds of questions to get to the truth of whether they're going to fit and, and be, you know, successful in this role. One thing that I, I found myself asking is, is there a shortcut in any way or a, val a way to validate or confirm in the form of personality assessment, you know, Myers-Briggs, a disc, a strengths finder, you know, the Enneagram, like anything, what, what's your take on how useful those are as any kind of factor in the decision-making process? I think they're all useful. DISC in particular, I, I, I like DISC. Myers-Briggs has been around a long time. 
And Enneagram, I, I like a lot too. It's not as common. For me, I, I know the Enneagram from a more metaphysical and spiritual aspect than I do personality because it was never meant to be a personality tool, but it's being used like that today, right? So it was meant to more be as an inner tool of, of recognizing your true nature, the Enneagram of your true self. So I don't know that the Enneagram is always reliable in the way that it's used today. There's this one assistant and she did the Enneagram somewhere other when she came out on, the, on LinkedIn and she said, hey, I'm a nine, you know, yeah, absolutely, I'm a nine. <laughs> and it's like, you know, this is not what it was for. So to me, an Enneagram is maybe being misused as a personality test because of the origins of the Enneagram. But I, so I would say, yeah, DISC and, and Myers-Briggs, yes, absolutely. I, I see that those are those. And when I take those tests, I'm quite surprised at how, uh, how accurate they really are. Okay. So now we've got through, say, we've done the selection, we've done the interviewing, we've made the choice, we're bringing somebody aboard. And then I'm just thinking, I'm, I'm also mentally going, okay, how far am I going with this? But <laughs> now we're going, okay, so somebody's here and we get to work with them. I want to go a different direction because I want to ask you, I, I want to... I learned a story I'd never heard before that I thought was pretty cool and the kind of influencer significance an assistant can have, but it's the story that you share about Elvis Presley. I, that was so amazing. And I know that there's many coincidences in the universe or, you know, things, if it had gone a different way, maybe the whole, you know, our lives, all of our lives would be different, but would you be willing to share the story about how an assistant made the difference perhaps in discovering Elvis Presley? Yeah. So Sam Phillips' assistant was Marion Keisker. And this is what I'm saying, what I said earlier about executive and assistant being with each other all the time. Because he was constantly saying over and over again that if he could find a white man who sounded like a black man, he, he could make a million bucks. And this is back in the, the 50s, right? So a million bucks meant something <laughs> in those days. <laughs> and he was saying it all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time. You know, if I could find a white man who sounds like a black man, I could make a million bucks. And so because she was hearing this all the time, she was tuned into it. She was looking for it, and maybe subconsciously even. Elvis shows up, he makes a recording for his mother. Sam is not there in the studio. This is the real story. He, Sam was not there in the studio. Marion actually made the tape of Elvis recording the song for his mother. And he gave her the money and he left. And she wrote on there, good ballad singer, keep. And she wrote his name, Elvis Presley. And she saved that. And she played it back for Sam. And Sam said, no, you know, I, I don't think so. His voice is, is too pretty. He's not quite what I'm looking for. And she, every time a song came in, because the musicians would bring their songs in and they would be looking for a singer. And every time they were looking for a singer, she would say to Sam, what about the boy with the sideburns? And he'd say, no, 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 no. Until one day, finally, they, okay, they, he, they brought him in and he went in the studio and he cut the song and all hell broke loose, right? I mean, the DJs were playing it. People were calling in and requesting it. And, and all because she heard him say over and over again, if I, if I could find a white man, this can sound like a black man, I'll make a million bucks. And she just kept that in the back of his head. So when Elvis showed up, she put it in front of him. And like I said, she knew better than he did, apparently, what he was looking for, because he said over, and I've heard the interviews with Sam Phillips saying, I thought Elvis's voice was too pretty, too beautiful. I didn't think he was the right person. But she had heard him already 
doing this other number for his mother, right? So she could hear that in there. And she had heard enough of these songs to know that his voice would work well on these songs. So finally they brought him in. And for me, what's so interesting is that Elvis would call all the time. He was so hungry. He'd call all the time and say, anybody want to sing her? Anybody want to sing her? And it's so heartbreaking to think about Elvis Presley as a young boy, right? Anybody want to sing her? Anybody want to sing her? Because he needed a job so badly. And he knew, he said he knew, always knew he was going to be, he was going to be somebody. He knew he was going to be a, a, a singer, you know? And so, and he told the story later on. He always said that it was in fact Marion who was responsible for his success because she was always putting him forward, even when Sam didn't really think that he was, he was the right fit for these songs. So he always gave her the credit. He, in fact, he told Priscilla, without her, I wouldn't even be here. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That was, that was a fun story to read. Okay. I think the last, the last question I want to ask before I ask what else we ought to cover before we move to the next section, but I want to ask you about compensation because say we followed that whole thread, we've identified the person, we're ready to offer them the job. How do we know what to pay them? You have to do your research on your market, right? You have to see what the commensurate salary is for that particular role. There's two things, you know, people have a tendency to pay less than the role is worth and a tendency to pay way too much more than it's worth. Way too much where it's, where it's worth is happening in Silicon Valley. I see it a lot where they've got a lot of money to throw at things and they want to be PC or they want to show how respectful they are. And so they're paying assistants who are not worth that kind of money, that kind of money. And, oh yes, it, it's quite common. I've seen assistants who have maybe two or three years experience being paid $125,000, $150,000, things like that. Nowhere, nowhere are they, they're not worth that kind of money. But they're, they're not doing their due diligence. They're saying, well, he is a certain caliber of executive. And the, the statistics say that this caliber executive has to be paying this much. And so whether the assistant meets those requirements or not, they're paying them that much. And it's, it's setting a bad precedent because now what's going to happen when that assistant goes somewhere else, for example, and she's not going to be paid that kind of money because she's simply not worth it. Or somebody who's even better than that assistant is saying, hey, I'm so much better than she is and she's getting 125, I'm getting 100. Hey, you know, the disparity. So that's the disadvantage of Silicon Valley. And I know that assistants are going to have a fit when I, they hear me saying this because they want, they want to get paid, right? They feel it's justified to get paid that way. But there has to be some rationale for paying people what you are paying them. I think more assistants are paid less than they should be paid than are being paid more than they should be paid. Let me be clear about that. But you have to do the research on your market. You have to see what's the, the, the salary that is fair. And then if you want somebody pretty good, you're going to have to pay a little more for them. You know, even if the market is saying it's, it's you know, $60,000 and this person, you really want them and they're saying 75 is what I want, you're going to have to come up with a difference. And I used to say to, to companies all the time, look, you are in a much better position to come up than I am and to go down in salary, right? It's a lot easier for you to give me a little bit more money than it is for me to say, well, I'll take a, a cut because assistants are not being paid that amount of money. So all of a sudden you say, no, take a cut so that you can come join here. Another thing, I won't mention the company, but they were they would say things to people all the time like, well, you're coming here for the opportunity. Yeah, to a certain degree I am, but then I'm also, I also need to pay my bills, right? And I also be, need to be, have you show me that I'm, I'm worth what, that you believe I'm worth what I am worth. 
So, yeah, so you have to look at the, the numbers for your market. I just, it's one interesting because I was just talking with somebody who uh, has a work visa to come work in the U.S. And she was telling me that they have to put down what they're paying on the form. They have to tell the, the immigration what they're paying this person. And it has to be the wage that's commensurate with the market. So if they're in New York, they have to pay them a certain wage. If they're in Arizona, they have to pay them a certain wage. They can't pay them in New York what they would pay them in, in Nevada or Arizona, for example. So yeah, so that's pretty interesting. Okay, so that spawned, yeah, thank you for that that insight. And on that on that comparison, by the way, do you I know there are there are firms who issue, you know, salary reports Guidance, and things like that. Yeah, but when yeah. you talk about finding comps for your your market or your area, do you mean informally just surveying, you know, like peer executives to see what they're paying or to go find some kind of formal report what do you what do you recommend yeah 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 you do both and somewhere in the middle is 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 the, the right thing i think i think polling assistance on what they are what they're making in that market i think that's that's to me the most accurate way to do it because that's really a good indication because you know you might you might say well the going rate is $75,000 but the other assistance are, you, you know that they're making, and I've had this happen over assistants will say, look, they're telling me that the, the going market rate is, is you know, $100,000 for this job, but I know at least five other assistants with the same caliber as I am, they're making between one fifteen and one twenty five. dollars so I'm going to expect to be paid that even though the going rate's $100,000, otherwise I'm not going to do it. You know, so gather the information, gather the data, and and then see what works for you. You know, I mean, uh, I, I remember a, a long, long time ago, I was doing a favor for an executive who I had been doing some consulting for, and he asked me, could you help me to find an assistant? And so this assistant comes in, I have her resume in front of me, and for that, in those days, for that job, it was worth about $40,000. That was what a, a decent wage for an assistant to a person like that. This assistant sits down in front of me. I'm looking at her resume. And I said to her, what kind of salary are you looking for? And she said, $50,000. And I said, $50,000. And she said, yes. I said, why? And she said, because I'm worth it. And I'm looking at her experience. I'm interviewing her. Frankly, I would have not even paid her $40,000, but she wanted 50 because she thought she was worth it. You know, this I'm worth it kind of thing. So there's there's so many variables. That's why I say it's important to to see the government has one scale that's too low for for a, for a good quality assistant. The government scale is is too low. HR will probably pump that up maybe a little bit more. Uh, and then you've got the general prevailing for your area, and then you've got that higher level of assistant. So it depends on the level your assistant is, and what they've been making, etc. To kind of to to get a good feel for it. Pay them fairly, honestly. You know, the job is really, really hard. If you've got a good assistant, they're working really hard. So, so don't try to, you know, force them down for five, ten thousand dollars that you can well afford to pay them. Just pay them. Yeah. Well, and, and to that point of the person who was so sure, you know, that she was worth fifty thousand a year, I'll just say I'm amazed when I interview people how many people have no idea. Huh? They're like, well, I don't know. What oh do you pay? <laughs> you know, I mean, or they'll have a very broad range, you know, and it's so there's something I think to be said for people who are very clear about it's this amount and, you know, whether it's because they're worth it or they have some other rationale, but there's something. Yeah. A lot of assistants will know what they're making in their current job and they're, they're going to move for an incremental pay increase, obviously, you know, whether it's it's 10 percent or 15 percent. It just depends on on where they go to work. 
But one place that I was working, they said to me, look, we're going to put you in at the current salary that you're on. And in, and in 90 days, we'll give you the salary that you're asking for. And I said to her, actually, in 90 days, I'm going to want more than the salary I'm asking for right now, because you'll get to see me in action. And without a doubt, you're going to know that I'm worth more than what I'm asking for right now. So it's up to you. I can come in at the salary and in 90 days, you pay me more because I'm not going to accept the salary in 90 days that I'm asking for right now. You drive a hard bargain, Jen. <laughs> no, it's, it's knowing my value and my worth. Yeah. They, they've never seen anybody like me. That's truth, Brian. So they can't put a, a dollar value on what I'm asking for because they've never seen it before. Yeah. But I've seen it. I know what I can do. So they, they, they have my background, they have my credentials, they know who I've worked for. They're listening to me talk, they're listening to me to give them examples of what I've done and who I've done it for. They have to be able to make a decision based on that. That makes sense. You know, something that I've seen is, it's interesting, I have a hard time even formulating this question, but I remember when I read about certain executives, I mean, and this doesn't surprise me, right? Because about executives who run who run Fortune 500 companies or Fortune 50 companies that I think at that level of business, it's all consuming, you know, to be there. It's every waking moment, their whole life is oriented around that role. And unless you've seen it or experienced it, you're not even aware that it's possible that someone would live and work that way. Right. And of course, not everyone chooses, but people who support people like that, assistants who support people like that, and even those who aren't necessarily running Fortune 500, but anybody who's driven, who's focused, who's hungry and determined, that they make their whole life about what they do and they expect the people who work with them to be the same way, to where they're calling meetings at 10 p.m. or they're asking you know, and expecting replies to emails sent at five in the morning you know, and this kind of thing. And it's not surprising to me to see that the executive assistants who thrive or maybe even just survive in that environment are those who are willing also to orient their life around that business. And what, I mean, at what point is it unreasonable? This assumes there is a point at which it's unreasonable, but at what point is it unreasonable to expect an assistant to respond you know, to, to things or to do work outside of those office hours of whatever, eight to six or something. I mean, I think you touched on that a little earlier saying younger managers, especially are uncomfortable asking, you know, these kinds of things, but what's the line there between, you know, expecting somebody to be that kind of assistant who will also devote themselves entirely to this kind of, to your work. Cause that's the key thing. It's, it's about you. Where do you, where's that line? Jack Welch's assistant wrote a book. And he wrote the foreword to the book. And he said, there's something of a madness in a, he didn't, not his exact words, but there's something of a madness in a person who wants to be an executive assistant because they have such outrageous demands placed on them, you know? And he got that so clearly. There's something, there's a, something of a madness for an assistant to be working at that level, at that speed, at that pace with their executive who's getting paid a hundred times what they're being paid sometimes, right? I mean, the, the remuneration, the difference in the remuneration is, is, is inconceivable sometimes. I had a couple of bosses who gave me very good bonuses. <laughs> I was on a certain salary, but then I got bonuses. And this is a good way to remunerate your assistant is to, in that time when they've done something that is so <laughs> unimaginable, you, you give them a bonus 
you know, just, and I've had my, my executive give me the bonus out of their own pockets. And I talk in my book about Greg Rankers, David Ranker, who would give his assistant a bonus out of his own pocket because he said, she's there side by side with me doing this stuff. She sees how much money is coming in. I'm on a bonus plan. She's not because of the, the hierarchy of the organization, the way this custom company is set up. So he would give her, when he got his bonus, he gave her a bonus, you know, but there is executive assistance. You can't pay them for the dedication that they give you. You, you can't, I mean, you can't, even if you're, if you think you're paying them a good salary, a livable wage, they're constantly over and above. I'm, I'm speaking now about an exceptional executive assistant that I talk about in my book. I'm not speaking about average assistant or a good assistant. I mean, somebody who is just a caliber you can't even imagine until you see them in action. This is what I say, you know, an exceptional executive assistant in full flight is, is a wonder to behold. You just can't imagine how they perform. But you're getting, for me, I'm, I'm getting a tremendous buzz from it because I love what I do. The high that I'm getting from having performed something that is so difficult or so time consuming or so vexing to my brain, you know, or if your boss says to you, how did you do that? You go, I don't know. I just did it. You know, you, you've been doing it and doing it and you've got your fundamentals in place. And so you're, you're just able to perform that. Right. But there's, there's a joy of achievement and there's a, a willingness to, to extend yourself and give yourself. And this is what I say. The qu fundamental question is, can I give my life force to this person? that I'm sitting here across the desk looking at this person, can I see myself giving them what they need, what it's going to take? You have to ask that fundamental question. And, and they have to be comfortable about, can I be around this person? Are, are they going to be somebody to whom I want to give everything? You know, Do I want to share all of my information, my family, my financials, my, my deepmost thoughts? my my hopes and my dreams and my desire for for uh for my business so it really it's it's not something that can be done lightly and executives really ought to give it a lot more thought than they do you know one of the things you had mentioned about can i take a road trip with this person you'll remember in the book i talk about mitt romney and, and his assistant right they 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 took they were on the road together all the time and he said, Mitt was the kind of person who would say, okay, let me take over the driving so you can do what it is that you, you need to be able to do. You can't drive and make the appointments at the same time and all that kind of stuff. So they worked incredibly well together. They took road trips together. And a lot of assistants, nowadays especially because flying private is so, is, is so prevalent, assistants will go with their boss. In years gone by, an assistant flying on a jet with the boss was really huge prestige. I mean, you really, wow, really, she does what she flies on his private jet, you know, that kind of thing. Now it's it's becoming more and more accustomed. And I see a lot of, not a lot, but I see ads coming up where executives are saying, you have to travel with me. And yes, it's private travel, but you're going to have to be able to travel with me. So yeah, you, you have to be able, it's like a marriage, right? You know, whether you're getting along with somebody, taking a long trip together. And if you're in a hotel room and you're sharing a bathroom, I mean, I always say my marriage survives so long because we had separate bathrooms, but uh, you're in a hotel, I mean, you're in a hotel, you're sharing everything. You're, you're in that space. Can you get along with this person? Can you be, this is what's happening right now with the lockdown, you know, can pe people are going crazy. They can't be together anymore. So this is all the things you have to look at in, in, their, in a relationship. Yeah. And what you're saying and, you know, so much of what you've written really just confirms for me that I think there's really a certain, there is a certain kind of person 
who, who really not just enjoys this, but excels at it. And it, it is difficult for me to quantify or to describe, but this desire to serve, mm. you know, is a huge yes. one, you know, somebody who enjoys those, what I would say, those tricky situations, the problem solving, like you said, the anticipation, you know, and it has a large degree of common sense. And at the end of the day, it seems to me that somebody is either that kind of person or they're not, but that's that's a generalization i know yeah and you know the, the thing about the assistant is that they are just simply there for their executive you know one of the things i talked in the book was about the guy calling his assistant on thanksgiving dinner she's having thanksgiving dinner and he wants her to book her flight to california the next morning and her family's saying look tell him so no. he could hunt right i mean that was uh, golf he wanted to, to play golf, golf. yes yeah. yes he wanted to play golf she said sure i'll take care of that wouldn't many people just think that guy was an a-hole? It's like, hey, let me interrupt your Thanksgiving so I can go golfing. I mean... They don't see... That's not the way the assistant sees it. It's sure, he wants to do it. I'm there to help him to do it. That's that's it. There's, there's none of that. He's an a-hole. He's an ego. He's a jerk. The people who think that way don't belong in that role. The assistant will never think that way. What a jerk. Calling me at 8 o'clock in the morning. I had this one boss who he'd call me at 8 o'clock in the morning just to check in. I loved it. Just to check in to say, hey, Jan, here are some of the things I've got on my mind for today. So when you get in the office, I've left you this or whatever it is. That to me, the trust level of calling me up and saying, hey, you know, we're side by side in this. We're partnering in this. Here's what, what I want to accomplish today. Here's my expectations. This is what happened overnight. You know, you're taken into their confidence. An assistant wants that. You know, they're never going to say, why is he calling me at home at eight o'clock in the morning? I'm going to be in the office in an hour. Never. They would never question it. Never. Yeah. Well, because I do want to go back to the, the Tony Robbins thing. That's pretty, pretty unique experience for sure. And I understand that. So you were an executive assistant to, to Tony Robbins. And yes. I understand during that role, you had an assistant. So you were an assistant oh, yes. with an assistant. Oh, yes. Right? In quite a few of my roles, I've had an assistant because of the sheer load of the work. You know, it's just just too much for one person to do. Yeah. What was that experience like? What? Working for Tony or working with an yeah. assistant? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Both. <laughs> yeah. Working for Tony. So Tony is what you see is what you get. As you know him in his public persona, that's how he is. That's the person he is. One of my colleagues who worked with me at Robbins, she just would say, Tony is just all-consuming. He's just constantly all-consuming information, everything. He just, he's just on all the time. And to work with somebody like that, you have to be on all the time. You have to be on your toes. And in fact, I, I get asked this a lot by people. What's it like to work for someone like Tony Robbins? And they, here's what they expect to hear. Oh, it's so exciting. It's such fun. I meet fabulous people. It's hard work. You can't even begin to imagine how hard it is to constantly be supporting somebody who's generating that sheer volume all the time. You, you, I mean, you have to just be there constantly alert for what they need, which is every executive, but with Tony, it's times a hundred, right? Because of the, just the sheer volume of what he's churning out all the time, his brain is going constantly. It's very exciting, it's very dynamic, and it can be exhausting, so you have to pace yourself. I'm not good at that. I'm all out all the time. And interestingly, I'll tell you this, when I actually left that job, I had gone to see a naturopath, and he said to me, your adrenals are shot. He said, it's gonna take a lot to turn the ship around because you are just, your mind is still functioning, you know, and you're just keeping on, he said, but your body, 
needs a rest. So that's not something I, to me, if, if, if I can make it happen, I'm going to make it happen. That's an assistant. Then they're, they're going to, and assistants talk a lot about this, about burnout and things like that and being aware. And at, now in this day and age, it's much, you become much more aware of it. In years gone by, it was, you just exhausted yourself. You just wore yourself out because you were there to do the job that your ex- executive required. It's, it's so interesting. You know, I was, when my book first came out, I did an interview with a, a woman's podcast. And she was asking me, what's, you know, how, how do you even dare to assume you can support someone like Tony Robbins? And I said to her, well, because I'm as good at what I do as he is at what he does. And she said, oh my God, I can't believe a woman would say that she's as good at what she does as Tony Robbins is. And I, well, that's the truth. He says, I'm as good at what I do as he is at what he does. If I didn't know that about myself, I couldn't support him. I had to know I'm equal to this job. If I didn't know that, I couldn't possibly do it. I would fail. So, you know, this is the confidence. And the thing about Tony is that he really took the time to find the right assistant. And he took the time to be truthful with me and honest with me. This is how I work. This is how my company is. This is These are the key people who are around me. This is how they are. This is how they think. This is how they protect me. You're going to have to come into this environment and you're going to have to manage it. You know, and he was so honest. My interview with him was over two hours. Sitting there, having him just telling me, this is what I want and getting a feel for who I was. And really, he, I, I think there was a real excitement on both our parts that there was this opportunity for us to be able to work and support each other and be our very best because there were a lot of similarities in, in, our, in our personalities and our characteristics and the way we worked. So it was, it was a, good, a good fit. That's great. What, what were the years you worked together? We, I was there 90, like 91 to 94, something like that. Wow. Right on. When he was still there in San Diego. Yes, that's right. He was still in San Diego. And after I left, he was in San Diego for a while, and then he moved to, to Florida, where he is now, I believe. Yeah. His, his, his company is still here. The headquarters is still here. Yeah, that's right. He still has an office here. Yeah. And I'm still in touch with a lot of people I, I used to work with in my Robin's days. Interesting. That doesn't enough. surprise me yeah. at all. It's, a, it's an amazing community. <laughs> yeah. And so many people there and have been, you know, for decades. So that's great. Well, Jan, what, what else, what haven't we covered that you think is worth covering still? that's a big question but i know we've covered so much but what what haven't we touched on that might be worth covering you know i i really honestly truly want executives to read my book for the simple reason that i want them to understand the true nature of an executive assistant i want them to understand the true nature of the role of the executive assistant and how that role can be so beneficial to you in your role as an executive, in accomplishing your goals, in you learn a lot about yourself in learning to work so closely and really so intimately with another person. You know, Richard Branson said in my book that, you know, you have to be good friends with your assistant because you're just together all the time. He travels with his assistant all the time, all over the world, right? I don't know that you necessarily have to be good friends, but you have to respect each other. If you don't respect each other, it's never going to happen because you're making demands on each other that there are sometimes you might say, 
God, I don't, I don't, not that he shouldn't ask me to do it. I don't, I don't want to do it. I mean, I got to call on so, so much more effort to make this happen, but I respect this person. I trust them. I know why they're asking me for this and I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to do that one more thing for them. And I think that my book will give you a very good accounting of a true executive assistant. And as I say in the book, why you should not settle for anything less. That's the key. Be sure about what you want, know what you want, and find somebody who's the very best fit for that. Because then it's serving you and it's serving them because you're giving them a chance to show what they can do. And assistants love showing what they can do. So it's, it's a harmonious relationship. It's a mutual relationship. It's a beneficial relationship. And it's a much maligned role. Because as I explained in the book, you remember the evolution of the assistant, right? Where you start, where you've got the reason why there's a misunderstanding about the assistant role is because you've got people who are typists saying they're secretaries and secretaries saying they're assistants and assistants saying they're executive assistants. And now they want to be called what? Business partners. And they want to be called strategic business partners and executive business partners. All, all of this stuff comes about because... People don't really know what the role is. They don't know what to expect. And because they don't know what to expect, they get confused. And then they say, well, should I really be asking them to do it? Yes, you should. And my book very, very clearly explains the role and the purpose of the assistant. And I, I think that you will truly get an inside look on what the role is about and how that role can serve you. So that's the reason why I wrote the book, because I really feel that the, the role has been maligned and assistants are not understood and they're constantly fighting for recognition. And I see it, especially in this day and age where assistants are constantly looking for ways to, uh, and sometimes inaccurately saying they're better than they are, but they're looking for that recognition all the time. And they're looking for that confidence because it hasn't been given to them over the years. So this is a really good opportunity for people to understand the true role of the executive assistant and how it can benefit the executive. That's great. No, thank you for that. And, and the book does a great job of that. So yeah, helping people, the way I think of it is kind of almost map the possibility that working with a high performing executive assistant can be. That, that's great. Well, Jan, I know we're coming close to the end of the time that we have allotted for this interview. I wonder, I have the, the enlightening lightning round questions, a series of brief questions. I'm wondering, and then I have two questions related to writing and the creative process. Sure, um, go ahead. Are you okay to do that? Of course, yes. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's, let's go there then. Okay. Question number one. Mm. Please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Life is like a... Life is like a... <laughs> this makes me laugh because many years ago, a friend of mine sent me a greeting card and it was a picture of a wooden chair, a rustic wooden chair, and it had a bowl of cherries on it. And the caption was, life is like a chair of bowlies. <laughs> 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 okay. Look, you know, life is all of those things, right? Life is absurd. Life is, life is magnificent. Life is worth living. That's really all I can say about it. Life is worth living. Beautiful. Okay. Thank you. Question number two. And here I'm borrowing Peter Thiel's famous question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? 
Unfortunately, very few people agree with me on knowing that the universe is always working on my behalf, so that the universe is always working on their behalf, always working on our behalf. Mm, beautiful. Thank you. And question number three, and I know this might be a stretch, but if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? You know, it would say something I borrowed from Les Brown, the motivational speaker, because I, every time I talked to him, I'd say, hi, Les, how are you? And he'd say, I'm blessed and highly favored. So that's what I would put on my t-shirt. I'm blessed and highly favored. Awesome. <laughs> I like that. Thank you. Okay. Question number four, what book other than your own have you gifted or recommended most often? Oh, that's an easy question. I've given two books, Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged and Gurdjieff's Meetings with Remarkable Men. Mm. Those Why those books? books? I'm a big fan of Ayn Rand. I, I, I truly like her self-reliance message, you know, that ultimately we are rational beings and, and we are responsible for ourselves and that we should really take, take that responsibility seriously, that we are rational beings. And, this, and, and it expands to the whole thing about, you know, limited government because we, are, we deem ourselves to be worthy of making our, our best decisions, things like that, right? So a fan of Ayn Rand. And meetings with remarkable men, because Gurdjieff is such a, a major figure in the uh, metaphysical spiritual world. And he tells about the, all the different people he met along the way of his, of his journey. And he talks, of course, he was originally from a part of Georgia, Armenia. And my from on, on my father's side, I'm part Armenian. So I, I on, an, on a visceral level, connected so much with the stories that he was telling and the people he was talking about, because I, I felt that connection with them. And when I was traveling in Turkey, I, I didn't realize it at the time, because I didn't quite know my family history at the time. But I felt a real pull, a real, like, I've been here before feeling, you know, and I went and I, funnily enough, I had that book with me when I was traveling at the time and the stories that he was telling and the places I was going, it, it made a, a deep impression on me. Meetings with Remarkable Men. That book has been on my list. I actually bought that book used at a bookstore in San Diego. Read it. You'll really enjoy it because you travel a lot and just, just, and, and the respect and the love that he has for his father and for his culture and everything, you know, I, I think you'll really enjoy it. Right on. And then I understand Ospensky was his. Ospensky. Kind of his, oh my gosh. The yeah. fourth way. He was his, he was his, he Protégé was like his assistant, right? His yeah. face and voice to the world. I mean, he was really the person who cataloged and brought Gurdjieff's message to the world. Ospensky, very, very important man. Right on. And what are you, what are you reading right now? Well, I've just finished reading a book by uh, Steve Schwartzman, who is the CEO founder of Blackstone. It's called what it what it takes. A fascinating book, fascinating man. All all of the things that he's done in his life. You know, his he came from a family of shop owners. I guess they, his, his father's family. They had uh, a linen and curtain store. When he was ten, he started working in there. So you know, not unlike me, I didn't work in a store, but my father was an entrepreneur, and so I got my foundation and love of business and all of the, my common sense and all that from my family business and and seeing how families operate in that entrepreneurial environment and how they think. And there's a there's a real common sense and a real practicality when you're raised in a in a business environment. You know. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Very, okay. very, very, very interesting book. And, he, you know, he just, the people that he's met along the way 
who are so influential in business, people like Jack Welsh and Sam Zell in the real estate world and, and all the different stories he tells. And he talks about a lot of things. This is why I say you've got to be around your executive to, to hear those stories and those background things assistant can, can learn from the executive, where he also talks about the fundamentals and getting the fundamentals in place and that being something that you can then build on. Also talking about how things were in the financial world when he started, you did everything by hand. Now you, it's all algorithms and it's all done for you, but then you had to sweat it all out, you know? And he tells all these fantastic stories. Very, very interesting book. I highly recommend it. What It Takes by Steve Schwartzman. That's great. Thank you for that. Okay. Next question is, it's about travel. So mm -hmm. you've traveled a ton. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you and you travel oh. to make your travel <laughs> less painful or more enjoyable? I, I do two things. I've done them forever. The first is I always take my own tea with me. I drink a special Japanese tea. I take that with me everywhere I go, no matter what the situation or circumstance, one sip of that tea and I am centered. I'm home. What's the tea? Oh, it's a Japanese tea. It's called Genmai. Uh, it's a, a rice, uh, smoked rice and green tea. Wow. And, you just buy it online uh, now? or uh, Yeah, I buy it in the, in the national food store. I can buy it online. Uh, the best place, of course, to buy it is when you're in Japan. And I, when I'm in Japan, I buy large quantities and bring <laughs> it back with me. The bulk is always best, but it's not the most practical. So there's the one brand, Sugimoto. They're, quite, they're a really high-end brand. And then there's also Eden Foods, which is a very common brand here with the natural organic in the U.S., Eden Foods. So I buy theirs as well for, for convenience. Wow. So tea is one thing when you yes. travel. What's the and other? And the other thing is, is hand wipes. I have oh, no yeah. issue with the virus right now because for years, for years, I have been taking hand wipes. I wipe everything down, my seat, my <laughs> everything. And you know, my husband and I, and in the, now people won't think twice about it, but in years gone by, they would look at us like, you people are neurotic, you know? But we would wipe everything down, never go anywhere without hand wipes. <laughs> Two Smart. things. Smart. You're always ahead of the game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, question number six. What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? You know, I've, I've given up needing to be right. And not, be, not from an ego thing or anything like that, but simply because I wanted to be right, not because from ego, oh, I had to be right, or I had to put somebody else, in, somebody else down. It was because I'm a very orderly thinker. And if, if thinking... If I'm right because it's orderly and the right way to think, then that's where my focus is. No, I'm right because of this, not because you're wrong and not, not because I'm better, but because I'm an orderly thinker. But as I've gotten older, I've, I've learned to let that go because it just doesn't seem that, that necessary anymore. And it, it feels a lot easier and I can breathe a lot easier. So letting go of being right. And, and I haven't mastered it completely. I'm not going to fool myself, but to a large extent, yeah, letting, letting go of needing to be right. Right on. Thank you. Number seven, what's one thing you wish every American knew? I wish every American, and, and, and not having been born in America, I wish every American knew the great gift of freedom that is bestowed on us by the founding fathers of this country. It's unlike anything anywhere in the world. We have constitutional rights that can't be taken away from us, whether we're rich or poor. If we get into a court of law, if we sue whoever it is, we have a judge that will make a decision, hopefully based on the, on the Constitution, right? And we, and we have our day in court. And 
that gives you such a freedom that other countries don't have. You know, they, they, they can't, they can, people, they'll say, I can sue all day long. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not rich, I'm not powerful. We don't have to worry about that in this country. You know, we, we, have, we have an intrinsic freedom as Americans that people need to treasure more. There, there, I see too much in this day and age, people are willing to give away that freedom for all kinds of, for all kinds of considerations that are not important for expediency. And <laughs> Americans are born intrinsically free because of what we have been bequeathed as Americans. And this came home to me when the Prime Minister of New Zealand, when she was elected one time, she was talking about America. And she said, I don't get America. And I thought, no, you don't get America because in other countries in the world, the individual isn't, isn't prized above all else, right? It's the government, it's the bureaucracy, it's, it's consensus. In America, we know as, as, as individuals that we have rights and they're enshrined in the Constitution. And, and, and that's something that we expect. So I, I wish Americans took their freedom more seriously. I wish Americans learned American history better than they're learning now. And I say that as somebody who hasn't been born an American. I, I understand. And, you, and you'll hear this from people who come from other countries who start a business, people from Vietnam and places like that, and they'll say the freedom to start a business from nothing. They came from nothing and they've been able to build a business. And look at these people in New York and all over the place who um, Sergey Brin and Larry Page of Google. Look what they were able to achieve. Look at what these people are achieving. And the freedom America guarantees. Yeah, it's, it's very remarkable. It's, yes. it's really special. I agree. Well, yeah, thank you for that. Number eight, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work? Uh, I can answer that very directly. It's understanding, especially in a, in a romantic or a love relationship, it's understanding that people love you in the way they know how to love. So there are a lot of people who their relationships don't work because they want to be loved in a certain way. They want their love people who love them to show them that they love them in a certain way because that means love to them, right? But if that's not natural for the person who is loving you to, what, bring you flowers or sit and listen to you or bring you, you know, you know chocolates or take you out for a nice dinner or whatever, if that isn't natural for them, just because they're not doing that, that's what you want, doesn't mean they don't love you. They're just expressing it in a different way right? We all express our love in different ways. And to be able to appreciate the way somebody loves you is, I think, what will help you have a successful relationship. Just let them love you the way they know how to love you and be grateful that they do. That is a really beautiful sentiment. Yeah, this is a really, I think, I want to say mature or advanced perspective, you know, to, to grasp that. And, and anyone who is willing to try that on, who hasn't previously who's maybe just made their partner wrong for not bringing me the flowers I wanted or, you know, talking to me like I want or whatever. That's maybe that could make relationships that otherwise don't seem to be working work. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know how that came to me because somebody once said to me, is your husband romantic? And I was thinking to myself, is he romantic in, th in the traditional way that people think of romance? And then I remembered when we were early married, I was telling him, you know, about the seasons in Australia are opposite to the way they are in America. And so when Easter came, I would get the smell of this particular flower that we had at Easter time. And I began talking about the different flowers and things that I liked. And a year later, 
I discovered that he had grown those flowers for me in our garden. <laughs> he didn't say anything. He didn't do anything. He brought the flowers into the house. I was like, where did that come from? He says, I grew it for you. That's really beautiful. I'm like, this man, this man, he's, my husband is unconventional and offbeat anyway, but you know, what a thing to do. He didn't just go to the store and buy it for me. He grew it for me. Wow. What were the flowers? Jonquils and freesias and gardenias. I, I like perfumed flowers. That's beautiful. That's really thoughtful. And the final question in the enlightening lightning round here is, is about money. And, and the question is this, it, setting aside compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money or what's something that you're always sure to do with it or you never do with it? I'm respectful of money. That's one thing. I learned that from my parents. My, I guess they were just, they were not in the depression. They were post-depression, but they, they took, you know, they took good care of money. So I, I learned to be respectful of money, but I don't have a scarcity mentality at all because my parents never had a scarcity mentality. And that's a big thing about money is that I respect it, but I, I, I don't feel it's hard to come by. I've never had that attitude about money. When I need it, it's there. And I'm grateful for access to money. And I know that money gives me the ability, more than being able to take care of myself, it helps to be able to be generous with people I love because I've been able to be a resource to people who I, I love dearly, who have not been as fortunate as I, I have sometimes, so I've been able to help them. So money is, is a wonderful resource, and I treat it with a lot of respect, and I welcome it in my life. That's a great answer. Thank you. Okay, so here at the end of the Enlightening Lightning Round, I'll just ask, if people want to learn more from you, or they want to connect with you, what would you have them do? They can reach me. In a couple of ways, it's the easiest way to reach me is to send me an email, jan at janjonesworldwide.com. I'm vigilant in responding to my email and I will, I will always respond. And that's probably the best way to reach me. And then of course, go to my website. My book website is theceosecretweapon.com. And you can also connect with me through that website. And then of course, in my speakers bureau, janjonesworldwide, janjonesworldwide.com. And you can also reach me uh, through the website there as well. Awesome. And I'll, I'll look forward to hearing from everybody. Yeah. And as a gesture of gratitude to you for sharing your, your, you know, your time and your experience and, and your wisdom with me and everyone listening, I've gone online to kiva.org, the micro lending oh, yeah. site. And I've made a $100 micro loan to an entrepreneur named Valentina who lives in Albania who will use this money to help buy what she needs to care for her livestock through the winter. So she's a 67-year-old woman who's the mother of three adult children, and she's a, she'll use this money to improve the quality of life for her, her family, and people in her community. So thank you for giving me a reason to do that. Oh, I am so happy and so grateful that you've done that on my behalf. Thank you so much. A woman in Albania, you know, to where does that come into your consciousness? So I'm so grateful that this woman in Albania, somehow she and I are connected through you. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. I support children all over the world through various organizations. In fact, I, I, at one stage I was supporting seven kids, now I'm down to three. So uh, it's, because uh, once they, they finish school, then the charity no longer supports them because now they're on their own and they, so we put them through, through school. So thank you very much for connecting me to this woman in Albania. I, I'm very happy to know that. Yeah, it's my, it's my pleasure. Well, the final, the final portion of the interview here, 
I, I told you I had two questions, but I really have three. And the, and the questions are this. I'll just lay out the questions. The number one is when we talked a while back, I asked you about the process of getting the book done. And it sounded to me like there was a story there. Like you didn't see yourself as a writer. It wasn't your intention to write a book yet. It happened anyway. So the first question is what's the story behind the book? The second part, the second question might be part of that, which is then how did you get the book done? So what was the actual process to get the book done? And the third is what encouragement or advice would you leave others with who also want to finish their book? So those, those three, maybe it's one big question. I don't know. <laughs> so people have been telling me for years, write a book, Jan, share what you know, teach other assistants. And I would say all the time, what I know is innate. I just do it. You know, I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. I watched my father and I would always give this answer. And one day it dawned on me, I have assistants and I've been teaching them what I know. This is how I want it done. I know you've done it this way, but this is the right way to do it for us because this is why. And I was, I've been giving them instructions. So cer certainly this is something that can be taught, you know, but I didn't know how to go about writing a book and coming up with chapters and all that. So I really, while I had the content, I wasn't really that interested in, in making the time to do it. Just didn't really interest me. And as luck would have it, one of my clients hired an assistant. He hired the worst assistant anybody in the face of the earth. And this person just frustrated me no one because I had a lot of work with this particular executive. And so I had to constantly work with his assistant. And this assistant was just horrible. And I would just be tearing my hair out. And when my husband I'd go to my husband and say, do you know what blah, blah did? And he said to me, Jan, write a book about it. Write a book. And I go, no, I don't have time. And I, I just kept putting it off, putting it off all the time. Finally, and then I did, I started cataloging what this person was doing and what I would have done and the circumstances around it. All of that, I, I started putting, making notes. And then when I started my business, one of my speakers is Chester Elton. Uh, oh, I love Chester. The, yeah, Chester. The you know, gratitude the, guru. Yeah, gratitude. Absolutely. He's wonderful, wonderful. We sent him to speak in all sorts of wonderful places like Dubai and Saudi Arabia and in Egypt and Nigeria and all these places. You know, he, people love him wherever he goes. He's just the best ambassador for, for America, even though he's Canadian. He's the best ambassador. So I was talking to him one day and he said to me, Janet, sounds like you have a book in you. And I said, well, actually, Chester, I've made a start on a book, but I've never done anything with it because as my business started to build, I gave my attention to my business. I wasn't really, you know, the book was not a priority for me. And he said, that's very interesting. And then he called me up a couple of days later and said, look, I talked to my publisher about you. I mean, <laughs> what a generous guy, right? I mean, I just say, yeah, yeah, I talked to my publisher about you. I told her about you and I'll send you her email. So, uh, but she'll get in touch with you because she has your information. I said, no problem. Anyway, I didn't hear from her. And so I thought I'll, I'll just drop her a quick line. So I sent her an email and I said, Chester Elton told her who I was. And she said, oh yes, yes. Send me, send me a chapter. Don't fix it up. Just send me what you've got. I can figure, I can read it and I'll know whether or not there's something there. But, you know, old assistants, that's the habit I wasn't about to just send something off. So, but I didn't really have a chapter formulated. So what I did was I took salient passages from different things that I'd written and sent them over to her and said, here it is, right? So 
waited, waited impatiently. I wanted so badly to, you know, does she like it? Doesn't she like it? Anyway, she got back to me about two weeks or so later and said, yes, there's something here we'd like to publish. And I was, you know, excited, just thrilled and throwing my hands up and excited to call up my husband and all that stuff. But then the real work began, right? Because now you have a contract and you have a deadline and all of those things. And I realized, I don't know, I don't know what, to, I've got all the material, what am I going to do with it? So Chester again came to the rescue. He put me in touch with a very high level editor. She works for Nobel Prize winners and all these kinds of people and very, very talented, very high buck, way over my head, frankly. But anyway, I gave, I sent her what I had, but she was too busy on other things. And I really never got the attention that I needed. And I had, you know, two months before the deadline. It's, it's important for people to know this, you know, in choosing a, an editor. Two months before the deadline, I, I had nothing back from her. There was nothing. I had to send her all this material. And she kept saying to me, look, I'm an old hand at this. I can do it really fast and we can bang it out. And, and then it was a month and I was just freaking out. So I just said to her, look, you need to tell me what's the situation here because I'm supposed to turn this book, completed book in, in one month. And she said to me, look, I've got this client who I've been working with for a long time. He's a Nobel Prize winner. He's paying me a lot of money. I can't give any more attention to you. Here's a brief outline of what, where I think you should go. And let's just leave it at that. I don't want any more money from you. Just here, oh, thank you very much. You're oh, on. no. I can hardly believe that. One month out, I gathered myself. I called my publisher. She knew who this editor was. And she said to me, I believe it. I believe the story about her. And she said, okay, we'll work to a new deadline. Go ahead, find yourself an editor. And we, we had a new deadline. Now I had, I now had to find another editor. And I, I tried various avenues. Different people was struggling. All of a sudden, just let it go. Came across somebody who was kind of a broker for putting writers and editors together. And he said to me, I have somebody from you who's available right now. The other people who I liked were not available. And he said, she's actually worked at your publisher. So she knows, ex and, and she knows your editor. So she knows exactly what it is you, you're going to need to do. And so I got all of my stuff. I sent it to her and she helped me to organize it. And it, it was a revelation to me. Chapter one is this. And, and I sent her everything for chapter one. And she'd say, now, Jan, we need a summary of the chapter. And I'd go, I have to do that. Yes, you have to do that. Every chapter has to have a summary. You have to, all of these things that, uh, when you see a book and you wonder how on earth they do this, I had to do all of that, put it all together. I would write something. I would send it to her. She'd say, there's not enough information here. You're repeating that. Take this from here, put that over there. I mean, it was a laborious thing to do to write a book. And people ask me, when's the next book coming out? I just say, go away. I don't want to hear that question. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it was, it was difficult. Not the subject matter. I had the content organizing it all, making sense of it, making sure that it was in a format that people would want to read. Because like she said, executives are going to scan it very quickly. They're going to look at the summary and say, blah, 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 next thing, next thing. They're not going to go through all the details. So you have to make it in such a way that they're going to want to look at this book. And then looking at the summary, go back into the chapter and read what you've written. So she was a fantastic editor. Honestly, I had Stockholm syndrome at the end of it because I didn't <laughs> want to let go of her because yeah. she had been with me for those three or four months and really helped me along the way. Got the book done to, to the new deadline, sent it in. And then I waited for a couple, what seemed like an eternity from my editor. 
And she wrote back to me early in the morning, got an email from her, and she said, I've got to compliment you. This book is really exactly what we were looking for. Excellent job. I just broke down and burst into tears. I mean, I sobbed my heart out because of the pent-up tension of, am I doing the right thing? Is she going to want this? Is this worthy of a book? Is this worthy of the publisher, of the advance they've paid me? All those things, you know? How do I know? I've never written a book before. I liked the final product. I felt good about it. I thought to myself, if she doesn't like it, I'll just pay back the, the, the advance and I'll publish it myself. But fortunately, she liked it. And that's how it happened. And as far as promoting the book, I was, this is, this is grace, nothing but grace. Ken Blanchard, of course, was in my book. He, I'd known him from my days with Tony Robbins, so he had a huge network, and he was very generous to me. And then Dan Kennedy, who passed away unexpectedly last year, the world's number one marketing guru, right? I, I could never have had access to him. But Greg Renker, who did the Tony Robbins infomercials, and from Guthy Renker, you know, they're the infomercial geniuses of the world and uh, direct marketers. He said to me, I will put you in touch with Dan Kennedy, to talk about the, the, the title of the book. I already had the book title, but he said, I'll talk to Dan. Dan Kennedy, this high buck who executives are paying tens of thousands of dollars for an hour of his time, he gave me hours of his time. And he said to me, I don't like you calling it the CEO secret weapon because entrepreneurs and small business people will think it's for CEOs and not for them. And so they won't, they won't buy the book as readily as if, if the title didn't say CEO, but my publisher absolutely loved the CEO secret weapon and she said, we are using it. And I took great pains in the book to talk to small business owners and to talk to entrepreneurs and share my experiences and my love for entrepreneurs so that when they read the book, they would see that this is not just about, you know, successful CEOs. And to my good luck, when the book came out, Ken Blanchard posted to his Facebook audience that this was the book to read. And Dan Kennedy sent out a blast on my a summary of my book. He had, I don't know, a million something people in his database and he blasted my book out to them. So my book debuted on Amazon at number one in its category. Not a, not a thing on my part, but through, through Dan Kennedy and Ken Blanchard, I can tell you, I was shocked when I saw that the book, my publisher said to me, did you see this? The book is number one on Amazon in the office. And I went, how on earth? How on earth? I didn't even start to use a, a PR person. And it's through these two people. And then word of mouth, word of mouth, and, and this is where we are today. So I wish I, could, I wish I could give you five steps, do this and this and this and this, right? But this was just pure and utter. The gods were saying this is required and they were using me as a vehicle and I allowed myself to be used. And that's how it happened. Should you write a book? Absolutely. You know why? Because... There's somebody, some corner of the earth who needs what you're saying. I'm telling you the amount of letters that I've gotten from executives and assistants from out of nowhere, you've never could imagine who these people even are, writing to me and saying, your book is my Bible, or writing to, executives writing to me and saying, your book has saved me 10 years of wasted time because I know exactly what to look for now. You know, I didn't write this book to be of service or anything. It was something I needed to get out. I, you know, people were pushing me. I did it. And I could never have known the, the, the tremendous service that this book and, and, and the position of, of being of service that it has put me in today. Because I never thought of myself like that, you know, 
that I, I wasn't trying to be of service. I mean, I, I love to help. I love to do whatever I can. But it wasn't my intention to do that. I was writing a book to share what I knew. But all of a sudden now I'm in the position of people really asking me to help them and guide them from all over the world. People who barely even speak English and I sure as heck don't speak their language, you know, who, who are reading my book. So write, write the book because somebody somewhere needs what you're sharing. Don't hesitate to do it. That, that's beautiful. That, that's a really wonderful story. Thanks for, for sharing that. And it, it just confirms what I already knew, which is there really is a story behind every book, you know, and that, that story is often as remarkable as the book itself. And, and as one who's read your book, you know, I assert, uh, affirm that, you know, it's a really great book. And there's there's a lot of value in it. I mean, again, it's for a specific reader, but that's part of what makes it great is you know who you're writing to and where they are and, you know, what they need. And your book really checks that box quite well. So thank you. Thank you, Brian. I've really enjoyed this so much. It's 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 been so much fun to, to talk about the book, to talk about my work, to share with you the interesting lightning round questions, all those things. It, it's really fun. So thank you so much. I really appreciate the invitation. It's been my pleasure. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.